Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Greetings, human or sentient object. It's the Nerdist Podcast number 336. This is a very exciting episode. Uh, I will get through the beginning part as quickly as possible so you can start jamming it into your ears to uh, great delight. Uh, doing a bunch of stand-up on the road starting the first week of April. I'm going to be in New York at Caroline's and then jumping all over the place to places like Portland and D.C. and Madison, Wisconsin, um, Baltimore, going to London, going to be go performing in London mid-May. I don't know the exact dates yet, but it's going to happen, and I will get to see if my references are too America-centric. So uh, I don't think anything else airs over there that I do except for the podcast, so we will see if a podcast can draw uh, some Brits out of their dwellings, am I saying that correctly, uh, over to see me perform and uh, I'll put up all the d- tickets info for that and dates for that will be at Nerdist.com slash calendar. I'd like to thank the Carbonite Online Backup for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast. Um, it's a really good idea to back up your information. Like, you would almost rather have, I would almost rather have my computer machine stolen as long as I could keep all my information. I'm not saying steal my computer. I'm not saying I just want it stolen. But if given the choice, if some sort of a weird calculated super bandit was like, okay, uh, I've trapped your computer and your information and you can have one of them back. I'd be like, well, super bandit, please let me have the information. And he would say, great, you can have it in the form of Carbonite, online backup. Um, It turned out the super bandit was really trying to teach me a lesson about backing up. So in the end, I developed this weird Stockholm syndrome and then we end up... um, living together for a while. It's a sordid tale. The important information is that you get your data back. Uh, Carbonite is plans start at $59 a year. You can access them from you can access from pretty much any machine. And then when disaster strikes, you get your stuff back. So Carbonite.com. Uh, use the offer code NERDIST to get two free bonus months. I'd like to thank Carbonite for sponsoring this podcast, which is Lily Tomlin. I can't... I mean, you know, I, I get excited about meeting people and but you just have to understand that Lily Tomlin comedically has meant the world to me uh, grew up you know watching her stuff on Laugh-In and Ernestine and and um Edith Ann, and then 9 to 5, I swear to God, I saw that movie 150 times, and then All of Me, I think I saw twice as many times as that, which, uh, those movies both still totally hold up, so I was kind of nervous, because I didn't know if I was going to lock up, and just sit there the whole time and be like, you're cool, um, but, uh, she turned out to be so incredible, and 
put everyone at ease and was just such a comfortable soul to be around. Uh, I absolutely cherished it. So Lily is uh, in a Tina Fey movie that opens opens the day this podcast comes out, uh, March 22nd, called Admission. So if you can, go see it and support comedy movies with brilliant people in them. Here is the Nerdist Podcast episode. I'm going to hang out with her now all the time. She doesn't know this. I was gonna, I'm was going to hang out. Lily Tomlin, if you're listening to this, I'm going to hang around you all the time. It'll be weird at first, but you'll grow into it. Um, I'll bring you food. I'll be, your fl- I'll be a neck pillow for you. You can just wrap me around your neck and, and take a nap on my soft, soft uh, rib meat. Um, so here we go. The Nerdist Podcast, number 336, <laughs> celebrating my new... <laughs> companionship that she's not aware of yet with Lily Tomlin. Now entering Nerdist.com We're recording. Okay. Welcome. Thank you. How are you, Lily Tomlin? It's nice to see you. I'm good, Chris. I Pleased am, to be here it is with you. an absolute pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Have you done any podcasts before? Is this your first podcast? No, I think I've done a few. You have? Yeah. And li- I, I mean, what's the difference between podcast and... Uh, you know, an internet, an interview, an interview that's played on the internet. Is that is there a difference? No, probably not really. Probably not really. It, it's basically we. Uh, it's a little more long form, and it's just sort of conversational. And you know, it's not. I mean, you're doing a ton of press for the movie that's coming out Friday, right? How do you handle the five minutes like talk show oh, interviews? Oh, that's rough. Yeah, I agree <laughs> with you. I never have liked it, and uh, and then especially if you get an interviewer who's like. A little bit stiff, and they they kind of don't know what they're asking you anyway because they haven't probably seen anything. Right. And they, they, <laughs> you know, they, that's always hard. And I try to. Uh, before I used to just be like stunned that it was over. And in the <laughs> old days, I, when they started with the really short segments, um, because you just you really don't get to say anything, and it's kind of lame, you know, very cut sharp. I love you. You and Ferguson are great together, though. Oh, I love Craig. I'm going to do him in a few weeks. You are going to do Craig in a few weeks? Because he's a guy that just, like, he throws the notes away. He's so darn funny. Why, he's just so quick. You don't have to do anything. You just listen to him. Yeah. And kind of just react to him. I remember he, uh, the last time I saw you on his show, which I think was last fall, he said, you look very nice today. And you're like, did I not look nice last time? And he goes, no, I just, uh..." (laughs) you go, what was I wearing? And he's like, it was an outfit. I don't remember. I, no, he just goes. I know. You don't. I I love it because you don't pre-interview or anything. Yeah, no, because he doesn't. He doesn't. <laughs> because on shows where you do a big, big old pre-interview, <clears throat> the cough button. Someone finally used the cough button I did. properly. I'm so professional. So the uh, uh, that you just uh, when you go on a show that does a pre a pre-interview, I never know what they're trying to get me to say. I can't remember what I told them when I had the pre-interview. Yeah. And then they cut it. They bring it down to some something they reduce it to something that they think the host will relate to or pick up on and i can't figure out what the heck it is how many you must have done car you did carson oh sure i did carson were, were there pre-interviews for the carson show oh yeah 
How how measure was well, he? Well, they just kind of what are you going to talk about? But then Johnny wants to be kind of loose and on his own in a certain way, so it would bear no resemblance. I was fine. I'd rather just talk anyway. I just free associate and go. But uh, so when they're really trying to get you to say something, I, I, you've you've done uh, you've had a you you raised pumpkins, didn't you? <laughs> uh, and then maybe you told him some story about you know throwing a pumpkin down on your kid brother or something. You don't know what. What they're trying to get you to say. Yeah, and that and that that bad trick is always. Uh, someone told me one. I heard somewhere yeah, that. <laughs> where did you hear that from? The guy fucking preparing the interview. Yeah, exactly. You didn't That's just hear that in the world. <laughs> but it's you know I think with Craig in particular, I think he the format forced him to go rogue because the the idea of doing he's he's like a punk rock background. He was like in punk bands. Yeah, no, no, he's he's very. Free, so the idea of having to do the same thing every day, it's like I think it was the only way he could deal with it, and the result was a great show. Yeah, I think I think if he had to do that, it would it have to shut him down a little bit. Yeah, because he's just flying. Yeah, that that that's that doing a show every night and having to be present every night and and, and be entertaining in in like six minute chunks. Would do, did you ever want to do that kind of a talk show? Ever? No, I don't think I ever would have been too good. Unless they'd let us, like, and, you know, Dinah Shore used to have a talk show here. Yeah. And, uh, for a long time. It was pretty successful back, but that would be in the 70s or something. And uh, we, they used to get everybody loaded. I mean, there would be wine in your dressing room, <laughs> wine in the coffee cups. You know, the coffee cups are sitting there. It's all wine. I was on once with uh, uh, Robert Blake. Uh-huh. Oh, I've been on with a bunch of them, but and I you and after a while I've got an old tape where you just want me to shut up. You're thinking because they started framing me out of the shot because I wouldn't stop talking. Really? Were you kind of were you hammered? I was, oh, no, I was loaded, yeah. From <laughs> and uh and you'd hear everything. Uh they they'd say uh <laughs> like David Niven was on and he started talking about doing some something with like Marlon Brando or someone and how and they would just make each other crack up or something and he'd say oh and we'd be, we'd just break up we'd break up and you can feel the energy coming from off the screen and it's me and you know there's and you're saying I'm saying to myself please don't say anything please and I you hear me pipe in more than Sonny Bono <laughs> get totally, over it. Yeah, just I couldn't stop it. Well, you get the comic genes, so you can't, you can't, you can't stop that. Well, I don't know if that's even comic genes. I think that was just like you know, impulsive compulsivity or something. Well, there was that whole. I mean, I, I mean, I remember. I was, I, I lived in the seventies, and I remember there was, there basically was a talk show circuit, like a really intense talk show circuit, and I remember seeing people going. I don't even know if I've seen them do anything else other than just appear on all the talk shows. Well, some of them were real pop. Yeah, they were regulars, like regulars on a talk show. Yeah. And they would appear, or they would appear frequently on the same show. I mean, just like Groden or, or uh, you know, uh, Smokey the Bandit. But um, Oh, Burt Reynolds, Reynolds, yeah. Burt Reynolds was on Carson a lot. Yeah, and Dom DeLuise would come Dom out, and they'd too, hit each yeah, other in the crotch like, with pies. yeah. It was a. Uh, and before that, like on par in places, there were all the people that had like a, a persona, you know, like Wally Cox or Hermione Gingold or Dodie Goodman or, or Renee Taylor. And they all, when they sat down, they had a certain way of talking, and everybody thought it was really funny, and they'd laugh. And Genevieve was French, and she would have fractured French, English, you know, like, oh, I love the applause. I love the applause. <laughs> and of course, the audience is just screaming and laughing and loving it. And. Hans Conried and Myron Cohen, people who had like a, a kind of 
personal shtick that they did. Like, like, like they just they one character that well, they would yeah, be known they would as. Say, and so different people would say to me when I'd go up to be on a show, they'd say, God, it's too big. You know, like I, I did all these characters. They'd say, people are going to get confused. They're not going to know who you are. And I said, too bad you're so normal when <laughs> you're talking. <laughs> do, you, do you like... Because you seem oh thanks Kyle you seem to have uh, you seem to have no problem just being conversational but you also drift into characters if you want and I feel like some people usually pick one or the other they're characters because they can't be themselves but you 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 I never well no I never felt I had that I always felt the characters were, were just it it was more varied I wanted that variety you know just to do one uh, plenty of people are hilariously funny and, and I'm fans of many people. Uh, but I was always attracted to character because I guess I grew up with so many and they, uh, they just made, they were funny or sad or hilarious or tragic or mean or good. And I just, I, I, it was really kind of falling in love with that whole range of humanity Yeah. and knowing that we weren't so different. We looked or sounded differently, but we weren't really. And do you, um, because you know, you've done a ton of characters that you've really just done one time. Like for a show, like for uh, Search for Intelligent Life, Science yeah. of Intelligent Life, but then other characters that people know that you did, you know, that, that you recur, did a lot right? that recur, like Edith Ann or Ernestine or these characters. So, do you like do you like disposable characters, or do you really like going back and doing no, the same? No, I like if I can find something relevant for them to say or be, then I yeah, no, I, I they're all like a little. It's I've said this before, but it's like Mrs. Duggar, you know, with the nineteen kids. Right. You know, you don't really have a favorite. You. It would be cruel <laughs> to say, you know, I like number six, but I cannot stand number four. Nineteen and counting. Yeah, right. And counting. I think they might be up to twenty now. <laughs> but when when did you start? You started doing stand up, right? In the well, I you know it was always characters, but I would get up and stand there and do it and force people to pay attention or try <laughs> to force them to pay attention. Uh, I never, you know, I would go on. It, it was just a way. It's, I guess, it's partly my family. My mother and dad were Southern. We li- but I grew up and lived in uh, inner city Detroit, mm-hmm. and then every summer I'd go to rural Kentucky, and I lived in a predominantly black neighborhood. I just had so many different people. Old apartment house filled with you know old professionals who couldn't move because they had earned fixed incomes, and my mother and dad, you know, blue collar Southerners coming up to the up to the city to work, and um, it's just it's rich. It's really juicy. And where did you start performing? Did you go to New York? Well, I and start- show- no, I, I put on shows all the time. I, and not because my, I had any show business in my family or we had, uh, we did, I never went to the theater, but I took ballet and tap at the Department of Parks and Recreation, which was a big program across, right across, directly across the street from my apartment house that uh, kept kids off the streets, you know, with, with programs. <laughs> and it I sounds like it worked. It totally worked. I, I loved it. More than I can, I've loved it more than God. <laughs> and I put on shows and I try to sell tickets and I try to get other kids to be in the show. And but it never occurred to me to do that, that that you could do that for a living. And then when was that moment? Um, well, I was I went I was started college, so I was uh, and I I when I say this, it sounds in my mouth, it sounds pretentious because I went I went into pre med, and I never could have been a doctor, never ever 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 I couldn't I if I opened a textbook, I would get like you know textbook narcolepsy and my head would fall <laughs> to the page, and I I'd wake up the next morning six o'clock and I hadn't studied, <laughs> I hadn't done anything. So, um, but I was in college and I got in a college show and I made a big hit just off the cuff, you know, 
and all the kids who were in drama, they were, they'd come out and say, oh, do you know what kind of concentration you have and stuff like that. And I thought, no, I just, it was fun. You know, it was like playing. So then I began to really take it. I thought I would try to make, try to make it a, make a living doing it. Yeah. And then at what, at what time did you start going up on stage after that? Was this in the, well, in the I, late 60s? Well, I a coffee house in Detroit. I started working at a coffee house in Detroit. This is back in the early 60s. So, you know, in those days they had, uh, you know, they'd have theater. Somebody would be doing a play. You know, some of the kids would be doing a play. And then we'd have after theater and sketches and folk singing and poetry readings. And then after hours we'd have jazz. I mean, it was an all-service, all-the-time coffee house. Oh, wow. It was great. That totally sounds like great. What an, and and culturally, what an amazing time to be. You know, that's like right, especially in the '60s, where people are starting to sort of break out of that post-war era. Everything's all buttoned up and uptight. You know, like yeah. it sounds like things seem to be more. Well, and, and the comedy was all. You know, in the in earlier, it would be. You know, it was all mostly men. Very few women did comedy, unless they had a show like uh, they were a movie actress that was like Gracie Allen or. Joan Davis or someone like that, or then, of course, Lucy was on in the 50s, but there still were a handful of women doing comedy. Yeah. And very few did stand-up. Jean Carroll was one of the very first stand-ups. Uh, she would be on Ed Sullivan back in, like, the late, like, 49 or 50. And I used to watch her with my mother, and she was very subversive in a in a way that as subversive as you could be, I guess, in 1951 or something. She always she was very attractive and she always wore a cocktail dress and she was very breezy and she'd tell husband jokes. Oh, that's and that's kind of messed up because that's still that still makes it about men in a weird way. Yeah, well, I guess yeah, but she still I knew my mother. My mother would like I was just a little kid, and I would, uh, but my mother enjoyed it so much. And she'd also talk about her kids, you know, and she'd always like uh, uh, as a little subtext, she'd say, "My daughter, rotten kid." <laughs> you know, so she did things that you know Beaver's mother would not do. Of course not. Yes. <laughs> so when you started doing these performance pieces in the early '60s, what was the nature of your material? I characters. I would, uh, but I would, t I would talk too. Uh, but I would do uh, a lot of characters I made up in those in that time. They still play. I mean, monologues, because they were just timeless. Um, I, I I used to do a woman at a funeral. She would use the uh, deceased as a ventriloquist dummy to cheer up the widow. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, that was one of my favorites at that time. Um, but I also did things like uh, The Rubber Freak, which I was a woman addicted to eating rubber objects. And it was really kind of a, a confessional, like an AA confessional. Oh, right. Uh, or, so, but if, in my own mind, the purpose of it was the hypocrisy of what's, what's an acceptable addiction or an acceptable uh, s substance and what is not. That's really fun. Do you intend, because especially, you know, the, the piece that I remember from, the, I, I think about it a lot, is the piece from uh, Search for Intelligent, Signs of Intelligent Life, where it's the, the two prostitutes get in the car. Oh, yeah. And it's like, oh, we're being interviewed again. Like that, that whole thing. But there's really like a, there's really like a nice social commentary underneath that. Yeah, hopefully. Other than just being a character character. Yeah, no, so, no, because you, you want to you fill their lives. So, and their lives are more than, you know, if if you're being if you're going to essence it in a in a certain three or four or five minutes or whatever, you've got to tell you've got to tell something really the belly of it some part of it to make the character live and not just be throwing out jokes. So is that do you feel like that's one of the cornerstones of comedy is to have it to have it be 
humanizing in some way? Or yeah, humanizing. Yeah. You said it. <laughs> <laughs> rather, that, rather than, I mean, rather than, that's what would be meaningful to me is like somehow so the audience will identify with they don't they don't look at them as something separate and just, you know, they you you create their life in some way. So even someone like Ernestine is broad and uh, and Ernestine is filled with puns and things. In fact, when I first saw Ernestine on the screen and when I went to laugh in, I was on the five o'clock feed. I was in New York. And on a Monday night when Laughin used to air, and I looked at Ernestine. I had never seen Ernestine visually and because I taped for about six weeks before we went on the air. I had brought her to the show, but I'd never dressed her. I dressed her at Laugh-In. I went in the costume room and dressed her, and I knew what her hair looked like. I had a wig built and everything. But So when I saw her, I thought, oh, no, she's going to be too broad. And, uh, and then I kept watching, and I thought, no, there's something so, she's something true about her, something real about her, and it, you know, just connects. So she's funny as a, as a person, and then she has such a, a definite point of view, and a lot of it is self-involvement, but she was able to do a lot of political stuff in the course of it, because as a, as a, a minion of Ma Bell, she could talk to anybody in the world and tape their conversations. <laughs> threaten them well yeah and also because uh you know because she was sort of physically was very much a caricature i feel like it's almost like watching um a cartoon in the sense that you can sort of like sort of like family guy like why i think you know seth mcfarlane as a person as just like a rich white guy might not be able to say some stuff but a cartoon baby can say stuff oh yeah for sure so as a caricature it just seems to totally free you up to be able to say things that you as lily tomlin People would be like, what's her problem? You know, but like you can make this commentary through these characters. Yeah, no, that's, that's another uh, asset to taking that form. But I think that's sort of the fun part of... But you're right. See, that's what I thought when I looked at the first time. I thought she looked cartoonish because she's so, so strong, so vis- uh, gr- graphically strong. Her jewelry's even strong, you know, the black jewelry with white dots on it. and um, But she turned out to be... Per- perfectly good. Well, yeah, and then, and then just the idea that you can see a character for four minutes and then go, I feel like I need to know everything. Like you understand a lot about the character that's not right on the page, but then there, but you want to understand even more. Like, what would you want to do? Like a really long form piece with that character, or do you just like? Small- well, it's so funny because Mervyn Leroy was still alive, and he uh, he he had George Schlatter or some or one of the the producers at Laugh In. Uh, take me out to his house because he wanted to do a Walter Mitty with Ernestine. But I was so adamantly against exploiting any character. You know, I didn't I, I didn't want to be known as Ernestine exclusively. I wanted sure. Ernestine to just be one of the characters I did. And, and it would be just like I felt it would be. I didn't want to do it. Now, in retrospect, I think, I wonder if it would have been great. And Mervyn Leroy, I mean, it would have been fun to. I had a chance once to work with... Uh, Oh, no, I forget his name. You know, the one who did uh, Manchurian Canada, oh, right, the old, yeah. old one, and uh, the original one, I mean, and the black and white with Frank Sinatra. And I didn't, he wanted me to do a Crypt Keeper with him, but I had to stab somebody on camera, you know, viciously, stab uh-huh. him a lot. I, and I could not do it. I don't mind them saying I stabbed him and they're lying there dead. <laughs> 
but you don't so want to really do it. <laughs> but I couldn't. I just couldn't imagine myself my the arm coming down and stabbing somebody, you know, and blood squirting out or whatever. It's too bad they wouldn't do. just let you like frame off your head and just go and just with words go. I can't believe how much I'm stabbing this guy. <laughs> I am really stabbing this guy anyway, a lot. I was, I was sick with myself that I, you know, that I passed up the chance to work with him too. Because oh. life passes and but I and think, he passes and yeah, but I'm if, still here and I, I didn't do it. I think, but at the time, if you weren't in the headspace of doing it, then it's probably better that you didn't do it because you, you know you wouldn't. No, have. no, I wouldn't have done a good job for him. I would have been. These guys behind you are Matt and Jonah. They're they're on the they're usually Hi, on the podcast. Nice they, they were waiting patiently outside. I think they were afraid to come in because yep. they didn't want to interrupt. Don't worry. Yeah, come on, come on, come pull up a mic. Sit down. At least we had chairs for you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, you you sit. No, you can you, you can sit. A, you sit. The lady you're stays in her chair. Yeah. yeah. Haven't you learned anything from Rosa? <laughs> <laughs> this is Jonah and this is Hello. Matt. Hey, Jonah, hi. 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 How are you? I'm really good. We we didn't want to interrupt you because you're mid story and we're like, well, oh, this, well, we cannot interrupt her. I know, but I, I didn't want interrupt you. Myself. I didn't want you guys to have the opportunity to not come in and just like you stood stood out the side the whole time. Well, we tried. We didn't want we didn't want to leave. We didn't want to be like, oh, we're leaving. So These we are just details. Nice Let's, to meet you. Anyway, nice to meet you, Jonah. <laughs> um, so the, one of the things that that I think was sort of an interesting point is that uh, and maybe may I'm wrong about this, but being sort of a product of the '60s, comedy-wise, you're seeing a lot of comedy that's a, that's more social. That's more about what's going on in the world. I feel like. What I see a lot of in comedy now, and I'm guilty of it too, is it's very selfish. It's like, me, 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 me. This is all about me, 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 me. And the 60s comedy seems to be about us as a people. This is the shit that's going on. Yeah, that must have been what I, where I got that from. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought it up. <laughs> Maybe you did. Um, not likely. Who did you... Uh, I, I don't think... We were talking about talk shows before. I don't think... I think attention spans... Well, maybe they're getting better now, but I think that sort of, you know, rote, you know, we have five minutes to talk. It's unfortunate that that's what talk shows end up becoming because, you know, Merv Griffin, Dinah Shore, Dick Cavett. Did you do the Dick Cavett show? Yes. How was how was Dick? Oh, that was well. I had a big episode on one of the Cavett shows because uh, I was um, I was out promoting my second album and my first album had won. Uh, on Emmy or Grammy, you get Grammys, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and won a Grammy, and it was the first comedy album produced by a woman that had won. A, and my manager at that time, Irene Penn, was my manager, and she had so she got an Emmy too, and uh, and so I come on the show, and this is this is 1972. I was just going to play Carnegie Hall. I think I was promoting that too. You promoted everything in the day, so uh, and Dick says to me. I wanted to bring up the album, you know, I, so I wanted to give a nod to Irene. So, uh, well, This is such a long story, a story. I just remembered everything because in the green room is, is uh, W.H. Auden, the poet. And Irene is English, and Auden's sitting in there like, you know, stained leather pillow. And he doesn't know who from Adam any of these people are. And Chad Everett was on with me that same night. And we, we went to the same college in Detroit, uh, but I didn't know him there. But he was, I was on, and then he was going to be on, so... While uh, while I was on, Dick started this whole feminist thing, saying when I said about the comedy album, he said, "Well, why not? Women are getting funnier every day." <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> and you, so there's there's people, women in the audience. They go, Sss, they start hissing, you know. And uh, then the next, I can't remember what else happened, but a bunch of stuff. And then Chad came out, and Chad 
uh, was really popular in Medical Center. He was a yeah. big TV star. Se- sexy, like he was a sexy, sexy sex TV, yeah. guy. Sexy guy, yeah. And very, uh, very popular. Had a huge TV queue, I imagine. So as he's talking, he says to to Dick something about Dick says you have a ranch, you have horses or something. He says, oh, I have horses and I have this. And he says, but my wife is the most valuable animal I own. Oh, <laughs> oh Jesus Christ! So ah, the seventies. So by this time, there had been so much had gone on all week. I've been doing publicity like that, and I mean, I had gotten one thing after another, and one show after another. Uh, like I uh, like on Mike Douglas one morning, the the head of Scotland Yard was on this great little English guy, and and, uh, and I said, have there are there any women inspectors? This goes no, this is a long time ago, forty years ago or more. I said, and he's a no, and I hope there never will be. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, he says, and as far as I go, or something. And I said, I said, well, could we leave the op- possibility open? And uh, so things like that have been happening. So when Chad says the most valuable animal I own. I don't know why. I just got up. It was totally visceral, and I just said, I got to go. Whoa. That's it. Yeah, and I walked off backstage, you know, and I suddenly thought, well, heck, I'm backstage. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody started grabbing me and saying, don't you, you can't do that to Chad. You go back out there. Don't you. You can't do that to Chad. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Embarrass uh, that 70s mustache. So whatever happened, I don't remember all of it yet now. But uh, you know, the sad thing is, is, he probably thought it was a compliment. Well, yeah. no, the best part is I'm leaving the best part out. See, so then he brings up Pageant Magazine, where he'd written a poem to Shelby, his wife. And Shelby's probably Shelby. If you're hearing this, you know that I was always terribly fond of you. And uh, <laughs> and this was just a thing of circumstance. But anyway, he's Chad, Chad reads a poem from Pageant Magazine that he had written about Shelby, and here's W. H. Auden sitting in the green room. <laughs> And my manager, Irene, is also very English and very offended at everything. And uh, Auden says, in her presence, I'm not there because I've gone to my dressing room. And Auden says, uh, who are those disgusting people? (laughs) (laughs) And Irene jumps up and she says, I've never been in such rude company. (laughs) And she storms out. Did Dick say anything after the show? Was he mortified? No. Oh, God, no. They just think you're a nutcase, you know. Really? You're the 70s, trouble. back when people hissed in audiences. Yeah. And I, kids would pass me on the street, and they loved it. You know, young people like it when you misbehave. And uh, But uh, some guy, kids would say to me, my mom says she's never going to watch you again because of what you did to Chad. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> it, you know, it, it feels to But God love me, he's gone now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, take that, Chad. You lost. You're dead. You and they won. brought that up, and they brought it up too. All those years later, he just died a year in the past year or so. Uh, but no, they didn't have any fun with it at all. They took it pretty seriously. Well, I almost, you know, I wonder, was it kind of irritating? Oh, you just said, and that all came out of you asked me, did I ever do Cabot? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good story. <laughs> But I almost wonder, you know, was there a burden on you in the sense that people were like, oh, she's the feminist comedian. So, like, everyone, because it almost seems like an air of condescension, like, hey, this feminist thing you got going on, uh, what's that about really? Well, at, at a certain point, no, you're like, are you fucking Chris, kidding me? You're exactly right. It's perfect. Even Toadie. I was on Merv Griffin one night with Toadie, and Toadie's up there talking. First of all, I had a, a piece of jewelry on. I had a plastic, and it was a like a, a, fle- a plexi square. Uh-huh. Uh, two to, and it had liquid in it. it, had kind of amber liquid in it. 
Tony says, she grabs a hook. She says, what is that, uh, uh, urine specimen? <laughs> <laughs> so, and then she gets up later and she's, you know, she's married and had children and everything like that. But she was a big Vegas comic. So, you know, she wasn't home making uh, uh, mac, mac and cheese all the time. Yeah. And so she started, she gets up and she starts walking down because she'd get a real pontificating at some, at some point. She says, I wish I had a clip of this. Damn it. I'm so mad I don't have that video because I have a lot of it. Uh, and she goes down front and she says, if women would just stay home like they're supposed to, we wouldn't have all this juvenile delinquency and this and that and this and that. You know, and she, and she said, and so, and the women should just stay home and forgive me, Lily, what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> she turns around and does that to me. Oh, it, it's all so damn funny that you just want to scream. <laughs> but it's, I mean, I do remember that I was, I was young, but I do remember that period of like, Women's lib jokes. Oh, and they'd always get, you know, they'd try to get the, the most, you know, uh, uncomely kind of uh, person on that they could. You know, oh, right. Not really. Um, they wouldn't let them anchor the news, let's say that. Right, right, right. So, and it was always that way. Yeah, it was the butt of the joke. Oh, man. For a long time. But even so, with, so with a movie like 9 to 5, which I've seen probably 200 times, I've seen that movie. <laughs> Uh, and Dabney Coleman was the perfect. Oh, and I got Dabney, Jane, my partner, Jane, I got Dabney cast, Dabney cast in that role because we loved him so much. Really? Where did you find him? Well, we see him on Fernwood at night. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he was such a sexy scoundrel. You know, he's like, there's something sexy about Dabney, but you, and he's just sleazy, you know, but he's sleazy, but you just sort of love him. <laughs> well, and, but particularly, particularly in that movie, like that was a, that, that really was a statement. That movie was a statement. Yeah, and Jane Fonda set out to do that deliberately, you know. I mean, she started meeting what they, in fact, they formed the 9 to 5 uh, organization after that, you know, to advance women's rights in the, mar in the workplace and so on. Yeah. And uh, did you, uh, did, were you super involved with the writing and the creation? No, no, because no, Colin Higgins wrote that screenplay. And he had done, uh, you know, I'd known Colin from Harold and Maude from years before, yeah. of which I was a huge fan. Um, and, uh, and, of course, Colin died not too long after that, after the movie was finished. And we tried for 20 years to do a sequel with Dolly and Jane and me. And, of course, now we're all too old to do it. You know, have, we'd have to be the mothers of... <laughs> <laughs> now, what, now what happened? The Wait, they're involved. sequel crazy right now, so just go ahead and pitch it. Yeah, I think it'd be oh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I just don't I just don't I don't want them to try to make the sequels without you guys. And I'm glad that no one I'm glad that someone hasn't gone crazy now and been like, we need to make all of me the sequel like this. Just one they're, of those. They're going to do all. They we'll call it 10 to six. No, wait, no, stop, Matt. She just was about to say something. They that, are going to do all of me. No. Somebody is. Yeah. How's or, it? No. A remake. They've been planning on it for a long time. They can't. I know. I they know. can't do that. It was the perfect just the way that it, I know Steve was so good. It was just so much fun. Both of you. And, and you know, you look at these types of performances, and I, and I complain about this in the podcast a lot, is that why, you know, why doesn't the, why, why is there not an Oscar for, like, that performance, those performances. Well, he did win the New York Film Critics. Steve did. I mean, so that was good. All right. That's but somewhat it's comforting. The, well, but it's, it's not, not the, the Oscar. I agree. I feel like it's so much harder to make people laugh for an hour and a half than it is to make them cry. Because everyone can... You know, like you just tell a sad story, people are like, "Oh, wow, that's a bummer." But, but, <laughs> but, but to embody like this split in half, the physicality. Of, I mean, no, I love that movie too, and you know that whole the ba whole back and bull bit was ad libbed. Really, between, between Steve and Libertini, Richard Libertini, completely ad libbed. Completely. 
people still say that they today. Don't. That's what people really take away. They they uh, really carry on about back and bold, back and bold. <laughs> <laughs> they love that. Yeah, they really did. Was it a fun movie oh, to work on? I, well, I I love Steve. I really I have I feel. You know, this is how many years? That was 87 or something, 85. 85, I think it was, 80-something like that. Yeah, 84, 85, I remember. Yeah. Uh, so it was a long time ago, but... Uh, and Steve was... Uh, Victoria Tennant was in the movie, and Steve mm-hmm. married Victoria. Yeah. And the first day we had a reading, I said to Steve... And I just felt a very deep affinity with Steve, and always have. I don't know why, but I do. And I feel kind of maternal toward him sometimes. You know, I, he always seemed lonely to me. Uh, yeah, he he yeah, seems he's a, he's a he's he's not he's not a, a you know on set he's not a person who's on, a lot of times you work with people and they're on all the time, and they can't stop if there's a piano they have to sit down and play the piano <laughs> yeah. singing yeah. and they just are on you know and trying to keep people entertained I guess and Steve's very quiet very rather conservative in his behavior always smart as hell but um, so. Anyway, so when we finished, we had lunch together, everybody, Carl and everybody, to get to know each other. And uh, I could just sense something between them. And I said to Steve, we walked down the street, and I said, are you going to start dating Victoria? <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, no, no I, make a, I make a point of never dating my leading ladies or something like that. <laughs> I'll and marry I'm them. I'm so glad he yeah. has it. Now he has a baby. He has now a he's boy. got a baby. Yeah. I know. Did she I... have the baby or is she pregnant? She no, had the she baby. had a boy. She had a boy. Oh, wow. Yeah, Steve... Um... He, uh, I mean, I was such a comedy nerd when I was growing up. So between like your comedy albums and your characters and Steve and Richard Pryor and just oh, you you worked on the Richard? Didn't you work on? Richard? I worked. Well, Richard was on my first two specials uh, because uh, I adore. I was mad for Richard, of course, because he did characters and of course just who he was and how he did it. And I would see him at the Improv. He'd already gotten kind of famous. So when I got my first special on CBS. Uh, I went to Richard to try to get him to be a guest on it, but he kind of didn't really, you know, he probably didn't watch Laugh-In that much yeah. or who knows what he was doing in those years. And so uh, I, so he, I had, I, to, I did, I put a set up at the ice house to show him that I, you know, that he, I was not a square white girl. He could work with me. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a set at the ice house and then I went to, he made me go to a porno movie with him. Oh my Jeez. God. What? And like, I said, okay, I'll go, but I'm paying my own way. <laughs> <laughs> you went Dutch. Yeah, we you do Dutch through. porno. Right. And then we went down to the neighborhood, and, and of course, from laughing, a lot of people, a lot of black folks knew me and liked me. So he saw everybody kind of knew who I was, and that was good and my favorite, too. So I, I passed all the fire. Wow. And did you, so, did and, we, you? and we became fairly friendly, you know, for a while. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were always friendly. I also did his old Priors place. I played right. Trudy the Bag Lady once. <laughs> wow. And, do, you, do you like television, or do you like film, or do you just. Like all the, do you like every medium as long as you can kind of do the character that? Is yeah, appropriate? yeah, I like I like to be able to do a little of everything. Oh, that's fun. There's so. And I, mean, I was at Richard's house the day he uh, Barry Gordy called him to tell him we were working on a bit for the special I was going to do next, and he, uh, and Barry Gordy told him he'd just seen a cut of Lady Sings the Blues and how good Richard was, and I don't have you. The first time I ever saw Richard was on. Ed Sullivan doing the Primps and the Princess and the kids having to play at school. Do you know that bit? Is that on one of his albums? It must be. It was on. A, it was on a compilation of I think a yeah. bunch of his like TV. Anyway, princes. you know, I saw him and I thought, oh, who is this guy? He's so vulnerable. He's so wonderful. And he was doing just a very, you know, middle of the road kind of piece of material. I mean, that could play to a Sullivan audience, but it was so. 
brings gives me goosebumps when I even mention it. And so when I saw when Barry Gordy called him that and I don't know Barry Gordy or anything, and it sounds like I'm really in the mix. <laughs> But Barry called him to tell him that. And he was on the, you know, he was having a hard time. Then he'd been blackballed from Vegas or whatever. You know how he, he you know, he walked off or something. I don't know all the history. But, uh, and Barry told him how great he was in that movie. And you could see Richard was just like that same kid doing the primps and the princess. Like, he was so, he was just like overcome, you know, with sort of joy, sweetness. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh. it really was lovely. Do you feel like there were... Did you feel a kinship in the sense, and I'm sorry if this is a really dumb middle-of-the-road question, but was there sort of a kinship of you as a woman in comedy and Richard as a black man in comedy in that time, like breaking out of traditional boxes of the entertainment industry? Uh, there might have been. You know, I mean, I think the characters was uh, would be something that we did. A, we did a cover, a Rolling Stone cover. I don't know what year that was. We, you know, we did a, a it was a, a combo, you know, he... We were on the issue. We were on the cover together, and then, uh, then the whole that whole writing it was David. Uh, oh, my friend David, what's his name? Uh, he's you know who he is if I said his name. Uh, but he did this huge story, this huge story on Richard, and then the next week it was a story on me. Was it weekly or monthly? Rolling Stone was weekly. Yeah. So I have a big Rolling Stone cover with Richard and me, and he's doing comedy like Satanic, and I'm, you know, comedy mask, and I'm doing a tragedy <laughs> mask naturally. Are you a generally happy type of a comedy person? Or, I mean, just the idea of like, you know, when you, you think of comics being tortured or it's like, oh, they're so, you know, are you a generally a pretty easygoing, happy yeah, person? I think so. Paul could probably tell you better than I can. <laughs> Oh, no, I'm kind of moody and temperamental, too, but not because I've had a tragic life, just because I'm mean and have a, a streak of, you know, mor moroseness in me. <laughs> Do you think that's Because I know we're all going to die, and I look at you, yeah. and I don't even want to think about it. Oh, no. Do I love that when Steve used to come out and say, you're all so upbeat for a crowd that's eventually going to all be dead. <laughs> Whatever he'd say. And then he'd put the arrow on the head. <laughs> Did you uh, do you did you watch a lot of live comedy when you were coming? Did you like watching comedy as well? Uh, yeah. Well, oh, uh, sure. I don't go out to the clubs or anything like that. I should, you know, but I don't. Um, I mean, you can go down so many great. There's so many great people. I I mean, there's people I really think are really good. I mean, but they're they're usually character that I'm at first attracted to. Because if I see somebody, I think, oh, why didn't I do that culture type? <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, I, Catherine O'Hara, I loved her when she was on SNL. I mean, on um, you SCTV. Know, yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, I love Wanda. Wanda just a straight stand-up. Wanda yeah. Sykes, but she's very funny. Elaine Boozler was brilliant, and Elaine never got the real credit she, I think, deserved. Well, she was right in the middle of the comedy boom of the 80s yeah. when there were so many comedians on every channel that there were so many great comics that I feel like they got overlooked. Rick Overton totally. is brilliant. Rick. Yeah, Rick Overton definitely. There's so many people that yeah, they I feel I feel guilty that I came along that decade before them and the field was so bare especially where women are concerned. You know that I uh I I just had uh, it wasn't that hard to stand out or to be seen. Because there were just so few, so few of us. Me, well, I guess that's one way to look at it. But I think the other way to look at it is that if, because there were so few spots, I guess, that you were vying for, that you had to be really good to stick out. I mean, I feel like that's, 
um, you know, like now anyone can do everything. And so it's there's so much noise that it's about rising above that noise instead of just vying for those handful of spots. And even when every every radio show has got you know thinks they're uh, going to you know like rush or every news show they got to have some comedy even to the extent that you know the 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 mainstream TV ones play clips from the Tonight Show and from right you know from everybody Leno and Conan and whoever whomever they'll play little political bits. Yeah, it's like it's just rampant. You know, <laughs> it's a, we are completely inundated now. Do, do you? Are you are you overwhelmed by the amount of media today? No, media, definitely, I'm overwhelmed by media <laughs> and knowledge. <laughs> I almost, you know, some days I almost, I really feel like our brains are not evolved to process that much stuff at mm-hmm. all. We need a chip. We need something to help us. Did you do you feel like um, people in general? Because now you know, there's you and know, plus you take take into account the disinformation and the lies. Oh, and sure, the, sure. The, you know, misperceptions and misconceptions and, well, I mean, you're just like, you know, jerky, beef jerky. Well, that's that's overwhelming. I mean, like, to the extent where you have to pick a news source that is congruent with your beliefs because they have their own points of view. They're not just delivering the news. Everything is so much, it goes through a filter. So how do you even, how do you even know what to believe? Do you feel like uh, when you were doing comedy in the 60s and the 70s, was was there as much depression and anxiety and stress as there is now, or because I feel like everyone oh, in I the know society, you mean? Yeah, or was but because we were being less inundated. I mean, I almost wonder. No, if... No, I think we could get a handle on it a little easier. I I think you know there. First of all, we had three television stations just to begin with. That'll cut things back quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the inter- everything that we have now is just. The with the internet and uh, it's just a it's a just a barrage of stuff that pass before you can even see it it's gone. Yeah. Uh, no, I, and I and I don't think things. Well, let's see. The Vietnam War was on, I and mean, it didn't end until seventy three. And we had Nixon. We had certain th- <laughs> we, had, <laughs> we had certain things yeah, that were yeah, Nixon. useful to comedy, uh, but not like today. And the, and you're right. You don't even where do you come down on which side of what and and how much shelf life does it even have? It has uh, like. 24 hours maybe yeah yeah and and people are used to disposable like even the idea of listening i mean i listened to comedy albums hundreds of times when i was growing up and i feel like now people just listen to something once and they go i got it what's next yeah like, we're, we're like locusts we're just like these mental locusts with in completely insatiable appetites. Well, I think that I think that's true. I think the demand to to stay on top of every little thing. I usually I I rely on Paul a lot. It seems like Paul, uh, oh, he seems to know twenty times more than I know. He's forever, you know, seeing something on on Facebook or on the <laughs> internet. And I think I'm there all the time, looking and looking. And he sees things. He'll say to me, "Did you see what what so and so said?" and like the other night, we went to Bill Maher's show just to, you know, I'd never been to it live to see it. Yeah. And uh, and Rachel Maddow was on, and she had a great line. And they, But it's gone like that. And I thought it was, I thought, oh, if I thought of that line, damn it. <laughs> and the line was, she was talking about Portman uh, the, coming out and saying, because he, he knows his son is gay, now he's for gay rights or same-sex right. marriage or whatever. And she said, I wish he would one day, I wish he had awoke, awakened one morning and found he had a, his son was poor. <laughs> oh shit! Isn't that a great, <laughs> that's a good so joke. great. Yeah, that's great. Hey, Jonah, back away from that a little bit. I'm feeling your... Nobody even mentions it. They yeah. never mentioned it. The next day, I said to the, someone on the show, I said, "Why don't you uh, spotlight like the best line of the night or something? You know, have a little category on the internet." Yeah. 
Do you have a? Are you on social have, media or oh, anything? Yeah, I have all of it, but I don't really do much. <laughs> <laughs> it's another job. It's another damn job. I tweeted, uh, you know, I do a show on ABC, so I tweeted. Yeah. I tweeted one night. Well, you can't even keep up with it. My God! And, I, and all, they, all I wound up doing was, you know, inviting people to concerts. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. You know, it's like you, you know, you say that 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 line gets lost, but you know, it's it's exactly how Twitter works. It's just it's this. It really is a stream. I, and con- I couldn't even ke- get back to the person. There'd be eight more, you know. And I'm doing. Oh, that I'm was really funny. Get- oh shit, that was really funny. Oh, that's like, oh, I'm that. And then you just ball up, and then you're just like, yeah. getting caught in the L.A. River. <laughs> I'm just totally overwhelmed. <laughs> do you uh, do you want to do live performing again? Do I ever- do it all the time. I just played San Diego a couple weeks ago. I don't do. I haven't uh, this year. I haven't done as many dates as I normally do because I was doing uh, that Reba show on yeah. ABC. Uh, but I I usually we try to do 40, 50 dates a year. Oh my generally. god. Well, where, where, is there a place people can go just to find out? Well, on my it, website, I guess they post it all the are time. Are you lilytomlin.com? Yeah. Okay, good. Good, good, good. <laughs> we'll be, I, I, now I, I want to see you live. I hope you do more shows this year so I can come okay. see you live. Are you, uh, uh, when you, when you, what? No, I was just. He's laughing. I'm, I started to say, and when I looked at him, I started to say, I'm a nice girl. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I saw a clip of, um, of you talking to Rosie. And I, I like just how sort of you're very just matter of fact about stuff. Like you just talk about stuff very openly. And with her, you know, she was asking a lot of questions that I feel like a lot of people could be like, "Well, I don't." And you were like, "Yeah, this is how you know." Like my mom was this, and you know, growing up being gay was this, and my and when I met Jane, and it was just very kind of comfortable. Yeah. Have you always been that comfortable? Uh, well, the the uh, there's a lot of progress has been made in this area, and uh, back in the 70s, I mean, this is not news either. But and I was working on my uh, Modern Scream album in the studio with Jane in '75, and Time called called my publicist called and said that Time would give me the cover if I'd come out, and I said. And I thought that was, you know, it's not because they were going to do it because of my work. Right. But I, so I was kind of, first of all, it would have been, it's very dicey in the 70s if I had, if I had come out in a big way. I mean, I, I felt I was out, uh, but I was never, I never had a press conference. I never called people and said, now I have big announcement. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember seeing a cartoon like in the New Yorker or something where some guys come, he says, I, I have to announce it. I'm not gay. <laughs> it, was, it was like a spin. It was quite a few years ago, but it was a spin on that time. Uh, so when we did the album, because the, and I declined to do it finally. I thought of it. I tortured over it because I thought, well, politically, it would be really great to do that. But of course, it would put the it would be the end of my career probably for 10, 15 years. Oh no! I I, I would I didn't do it. I didn't accept. It. And also, I felt a little bit bought. You know, like well, we'll give you the cover if you you know, tell us about your personal life. Right, and especially that it, it had nothing to do, it wasn't about your work. No, that's what I'm saying. And yeah. later, if you look, it was se- September of 75, some, I forget which issue, but they used uh, Matlevich, the serviceman, uh, you know, the U.S. Army or whatever he was in. So they just needed a gay person. Yeah. <laughs> well, they had the, they had the font picked out and everything. Yeah, everything. We're, just, we're just, just waiting. We're just, just waiting. a blank <laughs> name. And I'm going to drop uh, that name in. Yeah. yeah so, and then just a photo of just a question mark over. Yeah. yeah. But so when be. we did our so we put a bit on that album, which you could play some. Do you ever play? You play bits, don't you? We can absolutely. No, you don't have to play it now. Except um, um, 
Oh, so we did the thing, you know, we did a whole thing about, because I had just done Nashville, mm-hmm. and it was the first movie, and, and the album is all about being interviewed for a fan magazine, like Modern Screen, only we called it Modern Scream. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and, the, and the interviewer says, you know, Lily, what was it like to see yourself up on the big screen making love to a man? And I, and what we did is we just flipped all of Cliff Gorman's interviews from Boys in the Band, uh-huh. mostly, you know, where he says... You know, he's, he was so worried about his career, as I'm sure it, it didn't do him any good ultimately, but uh, to be playing a gay, a gay character in this gay-dominated film and back in the early 70s. And he said, well, I've seen these men all my life. I know how they walk. So I said, I've seen these women all my life. I know, <laughs> I know how they walk. I know how they talk. And it goes on and on. You know, people, some people say I went too far. Some say I didn't go far enough. Uh, and on and on. And, and then the p- kick on it is... You know, you don't have to be one to play one. That's yeah. so. Um, and but nobody, nobody, nobody even picked up on it. Nobody said this. This I thought was my big answer to Time Magazine. You know, right. I'll put this on my album, and they'll see that I'll do this on my own terms. And uh, so nothing came of it. And in '77, we uh, we did get the cover of Time for our first Broadway show. But no, I didn't do it. Is that is that sort of a weird? I mean. When you when your comedy has a certain kind of a thing that you're trying to say or message you're trying to say, and then some people miss that but focus on something else, you're like, no, that wasn't a thing. That was but just. That's, a- I mean, that's been the story of my life. It's there's something about me that people uh, just uh, like my. I was in. I was on Irv Cuff, Irv Cupsonet's show in Chicago a few years back. Irv is dead now. This was in the '70s, and I was on with. Uh, there was a woman, a German doctor, who had written this very anti-female book calling women parasites and all kinds of stuff. I thought it was a satire. <laughs> and I said, this is a satire, right? No, it wasn't, you know. So I start talking from a feminist perspective, kind of arguing with her. And my aunt, I had an aunt who lived there, and she called me the next morning. She said, well, you sure gave that women's lib a good going over. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, no. I said, Aunt Pearl, I was, I was speaking... Uh, it, for women's lib. Oh, no. And she's, oh, well, I must have got it mixed up. Oh. <laughs> it's just that simple. So oh. it's just like when I hitchhiked, I hitchhiked from Chicago, Detroit to Chicago, forget it, in December in a pair of ballet shoes when I was in high school. Uh, and in fact, the girl, one of the girls I hitchhiked with is later became Henry Ford's widow, third wife and widow. Oh, wow. Uh, but they were music students, and I was in pre-nursing at that time in high school. And uh, they all got expelled, but we lived, went to such a big high school with so many curricula, they, they, the teachers didn't even know who I was. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was, I never, I so often, I probably should be like, yeah, I should have been dead in a gutter someplace. But somehow I always eluded the tyranny of physical harm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you sort of feel like maybe that there was a parallel with that. With your career too, do you think that you? Well, I'm saying nobody ever, nothing came of, nothing much ever came of anything. I think people, even in the early days, many many journalists and Jane and I would be together all the time, and no one ever wrote about us, even though we we referenced each other all the time. And uh, and I think it's because in those days they didn't write about you, yeah, personally. And and if they did on occasion, it was they wouldn't if they had any kind of regard for you. Yeah, they thought they were protecting you. Did you ever feel, do you feel responsibility, you know, because you, you know, like you said, you felt this responsibility, maybe you should be on Time Magazine, maybe you shouldn't be on well, Time yeah, Magazine. Well, yeah, I did, I did, I was torn about that, yes. 
But did you? It, but is, I wasn't. I, apparently, I wasn't courageous enough. I don't know if it's the, the courageous thing. I think it was. I, I think it was. The the performer side of me understands that. Like, why can't it be about the work? Why does it have to be about? Why does it have to be about my personal life? Why yeah. that doesn't have anything to do? You know. That to me seems like a. It's not like it's not like your you know your comedy was all about that and that that was the message you were being. And then it sort of makes sense, but it, it just sounds like they were just trying to sell magazines with a with yeah, a story. Yeah, no, I think they had a an idea about what was going on in the culture at that time and what, what to, you know, and they wanted to deal with it and they were trying to think of ways to, you know, approach it. I what I read about how you guys met was that she you saw like an a special that she had done and then you wanted her to write a for Edith. What was the, what was the special that she did? Uh, she'd written a thing. Uh, it was for CBS for after school program. It was the first thing she'd ever written because she wanted to be a songwriter initially, and she'd written of and she of course as always Jane has never done anything conventionally, so she. Uh, had written this long, almost like an American Pie song, you know, went on for 10 minutes or something. And at that time, nobody, it was 1969 when she wrote it. I didn't see it until 71 because it, it was so well received. She won a Peabody for it and they played it every year for about 25 years on CBS at, at Holiday. And uh, it was about a kid in Harlem who befriends a stray cat and uh, all that stuff. Uh, so, and she just got a lot of attention for it. So then I'd heard about it, and we had a lot of mutual friends. But eventually I saw, and it was called J.T. Okay. <laughs> and uh, there was a book. Gordon Parks did the photographs. And uh, so when I saw it, it was I, want, I was working on Edith. And I wanted Edith to be more than she was on Laugh-In. And, uh, and I just, uh, it was so, it was satiric, and it was tender, and it was funny it was edgy it was uh uh poetic it was everything you know and 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 the language was almost like aphorisms and yet it seemed nat perfectly natural and i thought oh this is so great i just this would be so great for edith and i tried to get jane to come and produce the album with me you know and this is just how she is and she hasn't changed in all these years she finally down i'm down to like a 12-hour wire before the recording truck's going to come into the ice house and she sends me a whole bunch of paper. You can't even hardly oh, wow. read it. It's notated over here, and it's crossed out, and the arrows going down. And <laughs> and I uh, and I prevailed upon her. She came to L.A. and we produced the album together. Oh wow! What do you think and she? So, and I took a big leap artistically because so, of her. So she gave you the perspective that you. Well, she's just a very good writer, and empathetic. I mean, she's totally. We did share that that same empathy we shared for the for. Every for life, we shared that empathy for all these different. She's from the South. She's from Tennessee, and my family's from Kentucky. So we had that in common anyway. And she'd gone to New York when she was about seventeen because Morristown, Tennessee, wasn't any place where she would be likely to stay. Sure. And uh, in fact, Dolly used to say, "Oh, we used to get, go to Morristown to get our teeth fixed." <laughs> and, uh, so it was all that. So, what do you feel like you? What do you feel like you learned about about cra crafting characters or comedy? Like, what? What do nothing. you think? <laughs> no, nothing. <laughs> you just get a good idea, or you don't. You know, or you start working on something and it starts to live, or like Ernestine. When even Ernestine, I. I started out, I didn't expect to be on TV. I thought I would just be around doing, you know, stage or, and I'd go to the, uh, to the improv or whatever to work on a bit. And I just thought, um, 
she'd be like a tough New York operator in the you know in the early '60s. Everybody hated the phone company in New York because the phone service was terrible. Phones were the system was breaking down, and I learned later from the uh, union, co- the communication workers union, that at that time New York was letting the inner city just collapse because they were putting all their money into our, uh, into databasing and corporate. You know, it was probably just re- you know really ramping up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we want, and then also we knew that AT and T, you know, assisted the government in wiretapping and oh wow, lots of stuff. So it was really ripe for f- satire, and uh, and I started doing her like you know like a, a a real tough Bronx operator, and but as I did it, uh, it was so it was just so organic. I can only say that is all that it can explain why that character was so struck such a nerve. Because as I talked, I got my face, everything happened physically. (laughs) (laughs) You know, threatening people. It was like so sexual. Like she was just, and so she's drawn in on herself. I didn't know I was sticking my hand in my blouse. (laughs) And that my body was all corkscrewed up and it made my face tight. And then my face, my face being tight (laughs) made me snort. (laughs) So it was just, uh, I mean, I can point to that. And I thought, well, if I could come up with 10 more like that. That would be fantastic, but she was really organically born that way. And are, do your characters, do they develop with a relationship with the audience? Are you testing stuff out, or do you just have a very solid idea? No, like- no, I, well, I, well, I'm also persistent, you know, especially like um, when I was in, you know, in the last 10 years or more, I haven't done as much of that kind of thing. I used to have a storefront theater where I would leaflet, you know, I'd go to bookstores, we'd leaflet and just say, really tiny print, Lily reading new material, no props, no costumes, no actors, no refunds. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd have to call a number and do a fan quiz to get the address of the storefront, which was over on, uh, on he- uh, Heliotrope. Oh, know, right, over, yeah, right over there. Al- over there near, uh, I used to live in Los Feliz, so oh, okay. I had a storefront there. Like Heliotrope and Melrose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, where Normandy and Melrose come together somewhere yeah. in there. Yeah, there's still a couple of theater friends over there. Yeah. yeah, probably the same one. Well, that Avery Schreiber Theater used to be near there, wasn't it? Or some theater. Yeah, there's like there's now there's like a moth and fake. There's like a, I think three left in that strip. Maybe they're using my old... I, I hung a whole bunch of lights and had a sound booth up, you know, because it's just a little narrow storefront. It only I only had 25 chairs in it. Huh. That's but, really smart, actually, because you can't... Because once you get really famous... Yeah, you can't work anymore. People start writing about you. Because they're like, why don't you do the bit that I saw on TV? Do Like, you become sort of a puppet, I would imagine. They're yeah, like, yeah, that certainly happens. Do eat it then. Do yeah, Ernestine. Do Ernestine. But I have to work on new material. I don't give a shit. Do, you know, I'm going to give you a new <laughs> thing that's going to be like Ernestine, but it's a new thing. I don't have time for new things. <laughs> I just need shit I already recognize. Well, I worked on the search in that storefront, and people... Uh, I was. I'm relating this to you saying, do you or do you know what you're going to do so strongly or whatever? Yeah. I go by the if the if the if the words are so well crafted, or the idea is rich, then I'm bound to it, no matter how much it fails. Right. You know, because I know I know it's there. I just can't find it. The character. I can't find the physical character, the voice, and the body. Uh, and people would say, "Why don't you drop that? That who knows what the, what the hell are you doing?" And uh, and I'd just tell them, you know, to go screw because <laughs> I I just knew it was imp- it was good. I knew it would be good if I ever could crack it. Yeah. So that's why I'd have that little theater, and I just put on bits and 
you know, do a little, and people would call up, they'd have to call up and answer a fan quiz. Real esoteric things. That's really smart, though, because then everyone who's going is super invested. Like, they yeah. really, you make them work for it a little bit. Yeah, so I, they, like, I'm once on, uh, on Letterman, I think Tommy Velour appeared, and because uh, I was pu- publicizing one of my specials, and and he he announced to Marie that he was getting a divorce. <laughs> Remember some <laughs> some guy announced? Hey, I think that, I think I predated that, frankly. Anyway, he was, and so nobody knew that Marie that Tommy, except somebody who saw Letterman, and if they were a fan, they would have tuned in. Yeah. And so, and Tommy revealed that his wife's name was Marie. Oh. Now, Lud's wife is named Marie too. See, Lud and Marie who were supposed to be my parents. But uh, so we'd say, who, who is Tommy? What's the name of Tommy Valor's wife? Wow. Oh, they'd be <laughs> desperate to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, now with the Internet, yeah. they'd have it like that. Yeah, I wouldn't use it now. I'm too smart for that. Yeah. <laughs> and now you've given it away on the show, so everyone would know. Other but- things, too, like what's Mrs. Beasley's children's names? Oh, wow. Wow. And so you would get this collection of like twenty five, yeah, people who were hard, super invested. Hard one, yeah. And then did you uh, you worked out a lot of new stuff that way? It was yeah, just over especially and over again? I was working on the search at that time, the Jane's play, the search for signs of yeah. intelligent life in the universe, and uh, I've got lots of videos from it, and people standing up and saying, "Oh, I don't understand what's the con- what's the consciousness raising part?" Because it was there was a big feminist in you know middle. A big feminist centerpiece in that play. Yeah. So something and post-its. People, people didn't know what post-its were. They had just barely broken, uh, you know. And in fact, they were gonna they were gonna buy the show for Showtime or some HBO or whatever. And they said, could you change it to stickums? Because <laughs> <laughs> Trudy, Trudy the bag lady, you know, would write on post-its and she'd stick them on herself. Yeah. Which isn't really possible because it won't stick that well to fabric. <laughs> but I, I, I like that you, they still got that note. <clears throat> Could you change this? Does it? What does it matter if it's zigums or post-its? That's. I mean, you. At this point, do you still get notes about things, or do people just let? Like, like for instance, when you go, you know, people, you, you were amazing. You, like people loved you on West Wing, right? So, do you when you go in? I, well, I would imagine with Aaron Sorkin, though, it's oh, probably Aaron, pretty much Aaron, like no, no, Aaron. Could I change the uh? Uh, or can, can I say, hmm, instead of, uh, <laughs> well, I don't know. Let me hear. How are you going to do it? <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> no, I'm exaggerating, but we didn't challenge Aaron too much. No, I guess in that sense, that's pretty much like that shows inside his head. Yeah, and, and so much of it was about policy and stuff. You had to be pretty accurate, you know. Yeah. Couldn't take off and do too much. Did you ever challenge him on how fast you want to walk down the corridor? You're like, maybe I'll slow it down. <laughs> Just so you don't run over the dolly. <laughs> Trip and fall down. Do you prefer that, or do you like to be able to come in and rip? Depends. And- no, no. It depends on what's there and what what artist you're working with. I mean, you sometimes you want to be you want to be you you, you want to be running after them. Be they're taking you further ahead, yeah. faster. Now, well, if you excuse me, I hope this isn't going on the airways, but I guess it is. That's fine. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the uh, you know, it's like uh, some shows. I mean, you generally you don't do them because you don't think the writing. You know, well, I'm not of that same mind. I that's not going to work for me. Um, but generally, I see. I get it. If I decide to take something, it's because I feel like I somewhere I'm going to find something about myself or about that character that's going to be fun or rich to do 
Yeah. Was there a particular part that you learned a ton about yourself that you didn't expect? Well, you know, when you do, when you work on the stage, that's where I think actors love to work in theater. Uh, every night, especially if you're doing rich material like The Search, which I'm playing 12 characters, and it's a wonderful, it's just beautifully done. And it's, I'm giving, I, I know that if I do it well, the audience is just going to be validated and in, in, enriched, yeah. you know. And I'm going to, it's just, uh, I, I can't, I, when I was doing the search, I would just love to do it every night because it was like I had this secret gift I was going to give them, this play that uh, valued them so highly that, and as collectively. So, um, you just, oh, I was saying why people like to work on the stage. Uh, because every night you discover something. You have some new sense memory or you find a deeper place for it. Uh, maybe something wears out and so you find an, an, another reference or, or sense memory. This is when you're acting a, a role, you know, and doing, I'm not talking about coming out and just doing sketch comedy. Sure. Although you learn from that too and eventually you get better and, you know, you do stuff and... Are you good at being done with stuff? Are you good? No. You know not. So you still go back. You go, oh, I should have done this. Oh, or, oh, yeah. I had oh this. God, yeah. Beat yourself up all the way back to the dressing room. <laughs> and uh, oh, and then just, you know, this and angst over something you d couldn't do or you didn't think of soon enough. Or the damn cameras turned around and they're not going to shoot your side again. Oh, no. Yeah. You already came up with the. And you just, you just as the cameras, I mean, wait, wait, don't take the camera away. <laughs> I was just riffing reading for that person who had this close-up. It's not fair. And then you yeah. figure out motivation for her to walk in the other camera. Yeah. <laughs> you just what, say, if I just, what if I just win? If I was that smart. Yeah. You just say it really fast. You go, by. Yeah. So do you... Uh, wow. So you do beat yourself up a little bit. Well, that's... I'm sorry that you do that, but it's comforting because I. that is... That is Oh, I think we all, I, I can't believe we don't all do it, because, yeah, especially sure. if we, like, really love what we do or want to be, you know, just want to be, make it the best you can. Yeah. Whatever you, your work is. Do you have a do you have sort of a performance mode or a focusing technique or do you just like, ah, let's just do it. I'll just get out there and do it. Yeah, no, no. I don't have anything like that. Yeah, just get out there and do it. We'll just try to just the idea of I, I for the long time I thought, oh, there's probably some place my brain has to go so that I will be in the mode of everything will just be right where I need it to be. And so I would, I would, you know, I would experiment with different things. Like I'll get super excited before the show. I'll get super relaxed before the show. <laughs> I'll try to focus really hard, or I won't even think about the show. And I, what I've discovered is that none of that matters. Like some shows, I just yeah, you just soar and then come out, and it's. I always think of it like a, a blind date. You know, I always think you go out and you want to really have a great date, but sometimes you just don't. Yeah. And you just have to be okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're, yes. You're the you're working with Tina Fey. Uh, uh -huh. How was how was Tina? Well, that was great. I, except I, you know, I had to come to terms with the fact that I was not of her generation. What do you mean? I mean, I see the Paul and Tina. I think I'm their contemporary. You <laughs> you are. Well, you'd think so, but I'm not. I'm you know so because they start they asked me about the day. I really hit me was we sat down to eat lunch and. They wanted to know about Shrinking Woman and 9 to 5. Sure. <laughs> and I start thinking about it, and I realize they were like 10 years old or something. <laughs> when, those, when those movies came out, and I well, said, oh, help it, me. It is, it, is really, it is really hard to, like, I, I mean, I, you know, I mean, those movies, uh, 9 to 5, Shrinking Woman, Big Business. Big Business, yeah. I mean, 
you know, they just. They I still, I have still have kids. People who are grown now in their thirties or whatever, and however, and they all come shake their bracelet at me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so all that stuff. That stuff is great. I mean, you just. You're very, it's very gratifying to have that connection. Like, and I, like an old piece I used to do, you know, Ludden Marie uh, meets Dracula's daughter about the cake. You know, please, please stop talking about that cake. <laughs> slam, the door slams. And uh, kids would, oh, for years, kids would send me cakes backstage. <laughs> and uh, and the, so many kids would say to me, oh, Lily, you'll never know. I, I, they're grown up now. And they'd say, I, the, it got, the cake piece, Ludden Marie got me through my, you know, junior high school or got me through high school they'd have an old eight track and they'd play it in their dad's car because they think they're the only ones who have parents who <laughs> <laughs> like Lud and Marie well I just I I hope that you do feel like that you're a contemporary you've just been working longer than they have I have been you're you know you're absolutely right. it's absolutely true but you know like <clears throat> I, I don't think we would have gotten Tina without you you know well I don't know <clears throat> I won't say that you can't say that but I can say it <laughs> I mean there's a whole generation of people that you know, but I have had some great kids as my offspring, talented. You know, Tina's. I mean, I played mothers a lot of mothers now lately, <laughs> <laughs> and Tina's one of them. You know, and I'm pretty proud of her. She's a mad woman. I don't know how. It's like where? How do you do? How do you write, star in, produce that? You know, a show, a and single raise camera two show. Kids. Raise two kids, then find the time to write movies, and then throw a best-selling book. In there at the same time. Yeah. How does she do it? Damn I have it. no idea. I just, I, I, maybe I'm projecting, but I automatically assume like, there's no way she can be happy. How does she have time? <laughs> to, like she must be just a, almost burdened by her own sense of genius of like, I just have to get all of this out of me. She's a robot. I'm, I'm gonna die. She's a robot. You think so? Yeah. She must be not real. But her husband, she has a really cute husband. They seem really like a great couple. <sighs> So, uh, are you a workaholic or are you pretty good with your schedule? No, I don't know. I don't. Do you think I'm a workaholic? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to work. No. But then I get pressed to work or something. Or plus, I have to keep. You know, when you live a long time, you have to keep earning money. That's true. <laughs> you you do have to keep earning money. <laughs> I mean, and I don't want to die. So, you know, I I hope I live a really long time. But God, it's you know, then you got to really go out and grab, hustle the dollars. That's true. Well, how about giving me half of what you used to give me? <laughs> that kind of thing. You have to, you know, because that's how it goes. Yeah. Well, uh, well, especially now that, you know, we're, we're sort of out of the, we're sort of coming out of the era of like, here's $50 million to do a thing. Like everyone's, you know, even when you do pilots now, they're like, no, they're pilot presentations, <laughs> which just oh, means yeah. we have less money. So it's a pilot. That and, they, she, and with the whole thing with the happened with SAG and everything and the unions, you know, the after contract, the, when you have to sign an after contract, it was pretty chintzy. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, now the, now the unions have. Yeah. So, so we're hoping for. Hopefully that's They'll helpful. get strength back. <laughs> but um, admission is the, Tina, the movie with Tina Fey. Right, right. And I play a, her mother who is a notable femi feminist who wrote a notable book called The Masculine Myth. And. Uh, and I've raised my, I've tried to raise her in my own, you know, f fancied image, you know, of this kind of Amazon self-determining female, uh, independent, extremely independent, uh, powerful, empowered, you know, and I've probably done her a disservice. <laughs> she probably wasn't exactly that. <laughs> 
Do you feel like now, like, do young women approach you online and they're like, what can you tell, like, what does it mean to be a feminist now or what should I be focusing on or what is it? We must get that question all the time. No, I don't get because most young women aren't even keyed into it. You know, in the movie, I have a tattoo of Bella on my upper <laughs> shoulder here, my upper arm, and I did it because, uh, well, I, I named my daughter Portia. That's Tina's name, and I my dogs are named Betty and Gloria. So <laughs> I wanted to have a, a tattoo of Bella because you know young women don't know who Bella is, and, and so Bella was uh, I was really devoted to Bella. In fact, it was so funny because Marlo and I, some Marlo Thomas and I would go out, and he, this is way back, and we'd go, like, to when she ran, was going to run for Congress, and she was going to run out of Westchester, and we'd go up there and try to get a crowd in a neighborhood, <laughs> you know, because we were both on TV then, or well-known, and uh, we'd be out there, and it's Marlo and Lily, oh, and everybody's coming around, and we say, Bella's coming, she's going to speak here, and, you know, and we're trying to get, pretty soon here comes the car with Bella in it, the door flies open, Bella didn't stop for anybody. And here she comes out of the car just like a ton of bricks and with her hat on and there she always wore a big hat, you know, and pushing people aside. We'd have to run behind her. Uh, you know, she's in a big run. <laughs> she wants to tell everybody, you know, and she's so great and everything. But they're like, they've been just run over. <laughs> oh, she was uh, she was dynamite, really. So you think now, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing that it, that it's so that you feel like it's not as much of an issue uh, no, I think aware, I think it, it is an is. issue, but you know, movements uh, movements supersede others, and then the others come in behind and sweep under. Like the gay movement has been very powerful in the last generate ten years, or yeah. uh, and they've made incredible you know uh, progress. I think knowing where we've come from, it's just like suddenly having an, a, a black president in the White House yeah. for like forty years from Martin Luther King to Obama. Although you can see the backlash, then the people who the 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 racism and the real fear and dislike of somebody who's different uh, really starts to rear its head. I mean, so some of that happens. Uh, the women's movement, you know, a lot a lot of progress is made, and then uh, then you got to fight a certain backlash. Um, I, I, I'm not even sure how to speak to it, you know, because I've I've lived it so for so many decades. And things like, you know, one of the one of the uh, uh, fallouts of feminism, to me, I'm not. I shouldn't speak as if I know what the doctrine is, because or that I re created it. I like that you're sitting here and these people. <laughs> it's like the Today Show. <laughs> you're waving as people walk by. Big sign. I got a big sign. Um, and that is, uh, you know, uh, women, girls became more sexually available. I mean, across the board, young girls. I'm talking, you know, 10, 12. 14, we were pretty available too, I will say, but uh, not the way it is now. You know, girls are just so sexualized in the culture. Yeah. And uh, young girls, I'm talking about baby girls. Yeah. In no position to make these choices, I don't think. So, you like, like, well, it also, particularly with like pageant culture. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's gruesome, isn't it? Uh, but, you know, on another hand, it creates a, a, a much a more diverse and liberated people, maybe. But it's like the values are so skewed and crazy that uh, I guess it's I, I don't I certainly don't want suppression or anything like that. Uh, but I hear, you know, there's just too many girls, um, too many young girls that get used sexually. Yeah. You know, because naturally, boys, I mean, my God, young, a 14-year-old boy is ready to stick it anywhere. Sure. And I understand that, and I don't, uh, you know, 
I, I, I view him as a kid, too. But uh, girls have to know they've, they've got to they've got to protect themselves in some way because I used to, I say to Reba the other night we were doing a show where uh, she was worried that her daughter she has two kids on the show a girl and a boy both teenagers and she's fall, the girl has fallen in love with the boy next door and I said you somewhere I can't remember what the joke was damn it but it was like uh, I said well the boy. The boy leaves his semen here at the house and <laughs> moves on, and the girl has to bring that semen into the house. And whatever happens, you've got it right here in your house. <laughs> but nobody, t- you know, they don't talk about it that way. It's sort of like that's why the girls have to be protect themselves in some way. Well, you hope that's where parenting comes in. Well, you hope it, but it doesn't matter. Peer pressure surpasses parenting unless you have such a profoundly enlightened set of parents that. I don't know if anybody has them. How can you? You've got human beings. You're trying to keep going in the culture. It's a, it's just yeah. a huge morass and of what of confusion and turmoil and well, there's not just un- peer pressure. uncertainty. There's not just peer pressure at school now with a handful of kids. Now it's the entire global collection of people is peer pressure. Yeah, look at these poor these two uh, boys and this poor girl and why whatever possessed them to take photographs and put it on the internet. And then what? What? Where did this disconnect come that they would urinate on this girl? Oh my God! Just because she's out of it. But so much crap is accepted, and you know, everything—that's freedom of speech, freedom of what? I don't know, but we got to have it. But then we got it, like you said, we we need some kind of universal parenting that helps you help your kids. Maybe that's where the Matrix steps in. <laughs> Maybe the Matrix isn't such a bad idea if it can sort of temper something. Yeah. I got an. I want a new thing. I want Mooter Goddess. What's that? Like you know, Mooter Goddess, and she'll kind of tell benevolently, try to help, try to help everybody come to some kind of <laughs> understanding. All right, some kind are we of putting an umlaut in this. <laughs> no. Maybe this is. A- uh, yeah, <laughs> we are. We're putting an umlaut in it. Actually, actually, this is a good character. I think this is a good character, like a good benevolent per. Um, I think there's comedy in there. I think there's comedy in that character. Yeah, okay, I'm going to do it. Like like this this earth- that, that that phrase actually that was a character that Jane had written for us uh, a project she'd worked on a long time ago, but Mooter Goddess has always stayed with me. And we kind of saw Linda Hunt as Mooter Goddess. Yeah. But I think you I think I think there's I think this this wise lo- loving, totally loving, totally embracing, loving. no not re- the judgment is not, you know, the judgment is more of an embrace. It's like you know, tender. It's tender, but it's also it's scolding in a t- in a tender way. Yeah. And like you, sh- this is not why I gave you this earth to do these things. <laughs> and why are you? You know, she's almost maybe uh, maybe almost on the edge of a little passive aggressive, but so lovely. I think there's I think there's a fun I think there's a fun bit of of comedy there. Um, you know, I'm just flashing on stuff that's in that play. I'm going to go back to that. I'm going to pull some choice. It's many years ago. We haven't looked at it since then. Do it up. Do That's it. awesome. I'm glad I got to be. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you told. See, this is where, where how, now. See, this is an example of what how something springs up and just gets on the radar, blips up, and it. You say it's a revelation. But isn't that fun that you can have stuff in front of you? for years and then you kind of you're you know you're sifting over it and over it and then one day you go oh my god why didn't i that idea what the what was i thinking yeah i agree yes it's wonderful maybe you just weren't ready yet or i don't know what it is but it's nice 
it's nice to be able to do that, and it's lovely. Well, I'm glad you. This can't, I'm going to keep. This will be a bond between us. Are we? Do we have a bond now? Yeah. If it beca- if I you'll see and you'll say, you know, I was there. I I'm the one that suggested to her. I'll stand up in the middle of the show and say <laughs> that to everyone. Yeah. Just like a parent. Everyone, this is. A- uh, no. Every time I do Mudra Goddess, I say Mudra Goddess, Mudra Goddess. Thank you, Chris. Goddess. <laughs> 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 Why does she keep doing that? To- oh, listen to this podcast. You know, I'm, I drank this whole cup of coffee. I am flying. You are. <laughs> You're super. Have I been talking faster and faster no, and faster? Not at all. Well, I feel like I have. You want one more hour? Let's go. We can start running laps around. Okay, come on, guys. Well, We're gonna solve easy, the You're awful easy to talk to. Well, I really appreciate that, and and we are, we are kind of at the end of our time. But I really, I really could talk to you for all day. But I don't want to dominate. No, your let's time. save some of it. For... We'll save some of it for. Please come back on. Okay. Would you come back? I on? I would love to come back on. Oh my gosh. I have no idea that we're really talking to lots of people. Yeah, I know. It doesn't, I think we're just kind of hanging out. It yeah, shouldn't feel Next like Next time, let's have beer. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm on board. <laughs> Sounds good to me. All right. Well, uh, it's really been fun. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Lily Tomlin. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. They said, no, I can't have you. No. Why? Tell me why. Uh, a... Promo the show? No, not promo. We, we tell people to enjoy their burrito at the end of the show. Oh, and, I see. And the fan part of me is... Trying to, I'm trying to, I've been trying to play it cool this whole time, but you know, I. Was, uh, it, Lily, uh, Chris won't ask, but could you possibly just say enjoy your burrito to our? In a, in a, in a, in a, like, is Edith or someone? I mean, if you wanted to, <laughs> fine. Yes, everybody, just enjoy your burrito, <laughs> and that's the truth. <laughs> I need to be sedated now. Awesome. Give me that burrito, kid. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Okay, well, that was fun, you guys. Beautiful. Thanks a lot. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail, or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies and brands to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity, a how-to guide for navigating life's challenges from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.